Dear Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the strength that you have given to us as we have uh, been through the holiday seasons and as we have, uh, many have traveled, we're grateful for your protection. And now, Father, we know that there are many who are not here today at church and possibly class here even because of illness, and we trust that you will minister healing uh, to those lives. Now, Father, we ask for your special blessing during this class time. I ask that you will, by the power of your Spirit, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive what you're saying to us from the Word, and we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 34, 34th chapter of Genesis. What I'd like to do, since it's been three weeks since we looked at this, I would like to begin, go back to the first verse and read through to the point where we are uh, at this moment. So I'll read verses 1 through 17 to begin with. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent, silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according, to, according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons said, answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit and spoke to them because he had defied, defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go." Not one of the more gentle stories of Scripture, but one which is included because God, as to quote the words of uh, a 19th century historian, tells it like it was. And God had a distinct purpose in doing this. And of course, that purpose is for us to understand the violent nature of this world in which we live and for us to come to a realization that only obedience, explicit obedience to the Word of God and to the mind of the Lord is right for His people. Shechem today is a ruin. There is no city called Shechem in Israel today. There is a large city near the site called Nablus, which is an Arab city, one of the cities at which much trouble tends to break out in the so-called West Bank. It's at a crossroads. It was then and it is today. The ridge route which comes down through the mountainous area of Israel between the coastal route and the King's Highway which is over in Jordan today uh, intersects the highway or the road, I guess we'd call it in those days, that uh, comes up from the coast. And so there's a connector between the coastal highway, the so-called Via Maris, 
and the uh, ridge route that comes right through between the two mountains that you've read about in other passages of Scripture that uh, were rather critical in the early history of the uh, occupation of the land under Joshua. Gerizim and Ebal were these two mountains. And uh, they were located more or less uh, very close to the site of Shechem. Shechem is or was the site of Jacob's well, where we noted when we looked at this passage to begin with before the Christmas break, uh, was the spot where Jesus in John chapter 4 encountered the, encountered the Samaritan woman and had that beautiful discussion with her in which he told us pointedly that they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not on the top of Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had had their temple, nor down in Jerusalem, where the temple was built under the auspices of Herod. Those were not the places where God is really worshipped, but he is worshipped in the spirit of each individual. This was, of course, a very new thought for many, especially for the Samaritans. But it was at this location where this event we're talking about took place. Now it's pretty tragic and it's pretty violent as you think about the events which transpired here and the rape of Dinah by the heir apparent to the throne of this little city-state, this little kingdom if you will, was not looked upon very seriously by the people of the land but was taken very seriously by Jacob and by his family. Now we have to recognize that in our society we have a measure of government, we have a measure of authority. We may not all agree with how it's carried out or the justice that we may find in the land, but there is authority. We have to look at this particular period of time in this scene, however, differently because the land of Canaan was not unified under a central government. The land of Canaan was a battleground. It was a territory that was exchanged often between the Egyptian kingdoms and the kingdoms that ruled in Mesopotamia or possibly further north in Asia Minor. At this time, as far as we know, uh, Canaan was probably under the hegemony of Egypt, but there was no real Egyptian power there. There were no Egyptian troops or Egyptian governors holding this place together. So each little petty king was law unto himself. And so here in Shechem, Hamor is king. And Hamor is the, is the man who determines what is right and wrong. He is the chief executive, the CEO, if you will. He's the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary all rolled up in one person. So in seeking justice, there was no way that Jacob could turn to governmental authority for justice in this particular situation because Hamor was the one in charge and it was his son that perpetrated the crime. Even if there had been a higher level of government uh, to appeal to, we have to remember we're talking about a pagan Canaanite society, a society in which uh, you know, sexual violence was not at all unusual, a society in which sexuality, of course, was used in the worship of their fertility gods and goddesses. And so very unlikely would they have received any uh, help from a higher level of government if one had existed anyway. Would not have been looked upon as a particularly serious offense, if an offense at all, by a governmental authority in that society. So Jacob, therefore, had really only two options. We summarize those two options in, in what's considered to be the, the natural instinct of the human being when you face a critical situation. We call it fight or flight. You know, you either stand up and fight or you flee from, from the scene. Jacob's options were either simply to move away, as they expressed here, we will take our daughter and go, our sister, of course, the brothers would be saying, and, and simply move away and leave vengeance into the hands of the Almighty. Let God wreak vengeance upon them, as God has promised throughout Scripture that he will do. Or to take matters into his own hands. And Jacob could have done that. But it was Jacob's sons that decided on the second option. We will take the matter into our own hands. And really the, the crux of this whole thing is not so much that decision, but how they carried it out. 
this is really critical in understanding this passage. The choice they made, which was to take vengeance, uh, which was to uh, defend the honor of their sister, was made odious by their use of their religion as a cover for their real purpose. They pretended that the only real problem between our people and your people, the only thing that keeps us from merging as one people, is our faith. We believe in Yahweh. We believe in this particular God. And certainly, they probably didn't go into any theological discussion with Hamor here. They probably didn't say, no, this is what we believe, and this is the history of our people, and this is the kind of God he is. They simply said, we worship this God, and the sign of that worship is circumcision, and unless you're circumcised, there's no way that we can become one people. So the emphasis was on the outer manifestation of their faith. This was where the emphasis was as the brothers discussed this with Hamor. In looking at world religion and looking at much of what is called Christianity in America, this is not an unusual concept. For many, the outward manifestation of their faith constitutes the extent of their faith. For many, the act of going through the form, the ceremony, you know, dressing a certain way or acting a certain way, that is the essence of their faith. There is no transformed heart. There's no change within, which is what distinguishes true Christianity, true faith, true Judaism, if you will, as it was in, in the day we're talking about, uh, from all other religions of the world. You've all seen the mass of photographs of massive numbers of Muslims bowing down to, towards Mecca in their uh, worship as the Muzan goes through his little routine, which is such a mournful wail when you hear it. And you know that uh, that is the primary expression of their faith. You know, it, it's very easy for them to, uh, to justify whatever they do relative to their faith, as long as it doesn't violate an obvious cardinal statement of the faith. Of course, when Muhammad created this religion, he did so with the, with the thought in mind, certainly this seems to be true as you look at how uh, Mohammedanism developed uh, with making it as easy as possible to become a Mohammedan and easy as possible to live as a Mohammedan because he simply took the people as they were living in that day and, and hardly changed their lifestyle at all from the lifestyle they were used to and just focused them in on the worship of a single God uh, whom he called Allah rather than the many gods that they worshipped as a polytheistic people before. So mere outward conformity is the essence of most people's faith, most people's religion, whether we're talking about Ooga Booga or Redding, California, you know, wherever it happens to be. What one believes in his heart is often to be of little practical consequence. And as you look at many of the people who today in this land profess to be profound believers and whose lives do not seem to fit with what this book says a true believer ought to live like, we begin to understand that outward conformity is still the rule of the day for most. We as evangelical believers who hopefully truly have been transformed in our hearts by faith in Christ cannot live that way. Our lives have to reflect our faith in its essence. Our morality, our ethics have to reflect those of the scripture. Otherwise, we are denying the very faith that we speak with our mouths by our, by our actions. Obviously, the Hivites would not have become true followers of God simply because they were circumcised. Circumcision would not have made them Israelites. They would have still been Hivites. Just as for you and for me, Walking around with a Bible in our hands and going to church on Sunday morning does not make us a Christian by, by themselves. They hopefully are manifestations of a faith that has become real in our hearts. 
and we carry the Word because it means something to us, and we go to church because we want to fellowship with God's people and hear God's Word proclaimed. But for the Hivites, simply being circumcised was not going to cause them to believe in Yahweh, to become, as you to put it in our, you know, our, our environment today, would not make them evangelical Christians. But Jacob's sons, and this is, I think, really a, 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 an important point to note, Jacob's sons insisted that circumcision was the only barrier against union between those two people. I mean, you read the passage, and that's what they say. You become circumcised, and there's nothing else to prevent us from becoming one people. Well, let's look at uh, the next passage here, beginning at verse 18. Now, their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. We'll stop there for a moment. Now, the question is, does Jacob know what's going on here? Did Jacob know the full extent of the plans of his son, sons here? It's somewhat doubtful, as we read through the passage, that Jacob really grasped what their intent was. If he did, he would have known their plan was not right. Because this isn't the way God does things. However, he displays a weakness as a father here, and certainly as clan chief. I mean, he's the head of the clan. He's supposed to be the respected uh, sage here. And all of his sons should have said, but dad, what do you think? That doesn't seem to be happening here. He could have overruled his hot-headed sons. Certainly they had enough respect for his authority that if he had really put his foot down, they would have... Uh, Submitted. But I think what we find is so clearly absent from this passage is that there is no reference at all, any place in this whole chapter, to Jacob going to God and saying, what shall we do? This is critical. Because had he gone to God and said, oh God, this has happened to us, what shall we do? I'm reminded, just as I am saying this, of Hezekiah. Remember when Hezekiah was king over Jerusalem and Sennacherib led his great army through Judah and he was capturing city after city and he was coming towards Jerusalem and he wrote a letter ahead and he sent the letter to Hezekiah and in this letter he said, I've captured all the other gods of this land, all the gods of the people around here and I've carried them off back to Nineveh in cages. I'll do the same with your God. Hezekiah could have had his knees knocking and biting his nails. What am I going to do? I've got hardly any soldiers, and here's 185,000 men out here who have been butchering every uh, population they have come across, and they're coming up to our little city. What am I going to do? Well, Hezekiah didn't. What did he do? He went into the temple, and he took that letter, and he spread it out there in the temple, and he said, Now, God, what do you think of Sennacherib's words? Wise. Very wise. What do you think, God, of Sennacherib's words? And God responded. He sent the prophet Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, I don't think much of his words, and not a single arrow will fly over the wall of this city. Now, that's an incredible thought. I mean, Sennacherib basically said, if you got 2,000 men to put on horseback, 
I'll give you the 2,000 horses. I mean, that's, that's an insult. <laughs> you know. I mean, what's 2,000 men going to do against 185,000 anyway? But the idea was, you haven't got 2,000 soldiers inside your city. What, what are you to me? And of course, as you know, God destroyed that army in one night, even without a battle. See, when, when God's wisdom and God's will is sought, God carries out his purpose. Now, not always by wiping out an alien army in, in, a, in a miracle like that. But somehow, some way, God brings about his purpose. Without we as, as God's people having to violate the morality and the ethical nature of God's word. And, and without we as God's people using deceit to accomplish what we think is right. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus lived an open life. And Jesus did nothing deceitfully. Jesus never said one thing but intended another thing. What he said was an open book for all of those who could hear. And that's the way we are to live. Hamor and Shechem returned to their little town. Now we have to visualize the city of Shechem, for whom the prince was named, was not a huge city. We're not talking about a Babylon here. We're talking about a small town, probably with relatively small walls. Uh, we know there are walls because it talks about a city gate. You know, probably the walls weren't any higher than this room is high. And, and the city was probably not more than, you know, a couple of acres or just a few acres. Very, very small place because as best as we can interpret from here, the population was quite small. Probably only a few dozen people lived here, inside the city at least. And uh, so they returned to their town uh, to see if they could get the men to cooperate in facilitating the merger of the two people. Now these two men, I mean, read the passage. These two men have absolutely no idea. It doesn't even begin to dawn on them that they're walking into a lethal trap. They are completely trusting. Jacob and his sons have told us exactly the truth, and this is what they'll do if we do this. I mean, there's not an inkling that they distrusted the words of Jacob's sons. Now, the fact that they had not even an idea that the sons could be, you know, practicing duplicity here indicates their attitude towards this crime. They thought of it as nothing. The fact that Shechem had violently raped this, this gal did not in any way cause them to think, oh, well, we did a bad thing and we're going to have to pay. No, they didn't think of anything of it at all. They said, if we do this, it'll all be okay. This is the worldly mindset. It's even the mindset often in our society today about things that we as Christians consider to be immoral, unethical, and wrong. However, the true servant of God, which I hope we are, as the true servants of God, we have to do our best with God's help to be sure that we do not deviate from God's expressed principles in his word and that we do not compromise by saying, well, maybe it isn't interpreted exactly right here. Maybe our understanding is simply colored by Victorian thought, you know. Uh, it just reminds me of the growth of certain denominations in this country today where, uh, you know, people that the scripture clearly teaches are living an immoral lifestyle, are allowed to become preachers and bishops and elders, and, and it's all just a happy-go-lucky group of people because they proclaim Jesus with their mouths and say that to interpret their lifestyle as being wrong is to have a wrong interpretation of Scripture. It's to not understand the love of Jesus. But well, we as true believers must live according to the literal express statements of the Word of God as to what is moral and what is right and what is godly. Well, Shechem, 
this poor guy was so infatuated with Dinah that he was ready to take care of the bargain right now. He seemed to have a second thought about what this really meant. But he faced a big barrier. How am I going to talk the other men in this city into this particular medical procedure just because I want this girl? Yeah, well, you know, it was something to, to consider. I think three factors are noted in this passage that help us to explain why or how it is that these men agreed. And I've, you know, I've noted them there on your outline. First of all, the scripture tells us in the, at the end of the 19th verse that Shechem was the most highly respected member of his family. So the other men of the city thought very highly of the prince, of the man who would one day be their ruler when Hamor died. And, and so whatever he wanted must be okay. You see, his image, his position was not the least diminished by the violent act he had carried out against this young girl. Does that ring any bells with the morality of our country today? It should. Secondly, Hamer went with his son to intercede along with him, shoulder to shoulder. They went together to the city gate and they talked to the men there at the city gate. Now remember, the city gate was the meeting place. It was the palabra tree. It was, well, whatever other uh, similarity you can think of. It was where city council met, where the, uh, you know, the local judiciary carried out its activities. Everything of importance was take, took place at the city gate in that particular society of that time. So they went to ask the men of the city to cooperate. Both Hamer and Shechem were going to be circumcised. And so as the men of the city heard that, they would, of course, if they were to say, oh, well, that's all right for you, but I'm not going to do it. That would be interpreted as cowardice. And who would want to be viewed as a coward in the eyes of the prince and the king of the land? Thirdly, Hamer dangled a little carrot out there. And that's what you find in verse 24. No, back up, verse 23. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. Now, what is Hamor intending by what he's saying here? Is he saying that if, if we do this and they merge with us, then as a merged people, we will acquire all of their wealth as they intermarry and, and uh, we become one people? Or is he saying, let us do this, and then when Jacob's not looking, we'll knock him off and, and we'll have all that he had, has. You know, it's very possible he is implying the latter because their morals and their ethics were very different from those of, of Jacob. Hamer's arguments carried the day. And the men of the city agreed, okay, we'll go through with this procedure for your son's sake. Since you're going to do it too, we'll do this. Now, we're not told who performed the operation. But I think it could be implied that Jacob's sons were present because they wanted to make sure that it actually was carried out and that it was carried out on all of the males at the same time. This is very important to the plan, as we'll see. Verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. And they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, 
they will gather together against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? A couple of days after the circumcision was carried out, while these men were in considerable pain from the operation, Jacob's sons made their move. Now you have to remember, in those days, there were no anesthesias, there were no antiseptics. There was really nothing that could relieve the pain of these men in a medical sense. So these men were in genuine misery. I think probably many of them got drunk to try to kill the pain, you know, at least to be out of their minds while this is going on. Whatever the case, they were in no condition to fight a battle. So Jacob's sons here, by deceit, had rendered the population of the city of Shechem defenseless by corrupting the true meaning of circumcision. They had used God's sign of separation, God's sign of a people separated unto him as an instrument of treachery and cruelty. They had no quibble with the Hivites. They only had quibble with one man, and that was Shechem. They had nothing against the other men of the city, just Shechem. But they knew that if they were to attempt to assassinate Shechem, you know, take him out in the back somewhere and beat his head off, they'd have to answer to the rest of the male population. So their desire for revenge, their desire to... to uh, Defend the honor of their sister led to the crime of genocide, which would stigmatize the family of Jacob. Now, the brothers were right to defend the honor of their sister. They were right to defend the honor of their family. They were right not to intermarry with this pagan people. But what they were doing here was demonstrating orthodoxy without love and mercy. And unfortunately, the history of the church has seen this on many occasions, where people put the letter of the law out there, and they've got to live legalistically according to the letter of the law, regardless of whether the love and the mercy of God are shown through this or not. This as I was thinking about this, brought to mind 16th century Geneva. We've been to Geneva. It's, 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 you know, it's kind of a pretty little city, and they've got a big monument there to Calvin and those that were with him. But in that city of Geneva, in the 16th century, now the Protestant church, the Protestant leaders, I should say, rebelled against the Catholic church because of various abuses in the church, because of persecution, for one thing. And, and yet in Geneva, after Calvin was installed and certain uh, men under him who really kind of took the reins into their own hands of authority, his particular theology was set up as the theology everybody had to live by. And if you didn't live by that theology, you were exiled or even executed. And it was known that in Calvin's Geneva, the rate of execution exceeded the rate of other cities of its size of that day. And many were executed because they didn't agree with the theological position of John Calvin. In the 17th century, here in this country, Quakers were persecuted in Massachusetts Bay by the Puritans. And when the Quakers would not submit to the authority, and when they continued to can, uh, to enter into a land that they weren't wanted in, they, in many cases, were executed. In the 13th century, the, the Roman church persecuted by crusade the Albigenses because of a difference in religion. Now, the Albigenses were true heretics in every sense of the word. But nevertheless, does that mean that the church has a right to go and massacre them? Of course, when I say the church, I'm using it as as an uh, earthly term here at this particular uh, situation rather than as the, in the biblical sense. And, and, you know, there are numerous examples of this in history. 
and you can be sure that God was not behind these activities. Shechem deserved punishment. But it wasn't the right of Jacob's sons to punish him, or beyond that, to extend the punishment to the whole population of the city, especially since God did not say to do it. Now, later on, when the nation of Israel re-enters the land of Canaan after the exodus from, from uh, Egypt, God says specifically to them, wipe them all out because they are a cancer. They have the command of God to do that. There is no command of God here to do that. Now, the scripture tells us only the names of two sons participating here, and that's Simeon and Levi. Now, the question is why? Jacob had 11 sons. Now, certainly Joseph was just a small boy yet, but the other sons were probably all old enough to wield a sword. Why? were only two involved in the slaughter. Now, if you, if you can remember back to the beginning of Jacob's family, Leah gave him four sons in a row, bing, 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 bing. And uh, those sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Simeon and Levi are the two in-between sons. Reuben's the eldest, Judah was the fourth, and Simeon and Levi were second and third sons of Leah by Jacob. So the question could be asked, why weren't the four together? Why, why was it just the two? Well, I think other passages of Scripture help us to understand something about uh, Judah and uh, Reuben. Let me just remind you that uh, they seem to be a little less prone to bloodshed. Later on, and we'll get to that uh, story eventually, the braggart Joseph, remember the youngest, uh, not the youngest, but the uh, younger of the 11 sons, the oldest of Rachel's children, uh, was a real pain in the neck to the other brothers. And at one time, they had an opportunity to do him in. He came out where they were herding sheep, and he was a long ways from the protection of his father. And the boy said, let's kill him. And Reuben says, oh, I don't think that's a very good idea. He said, quote, let us not take his life. So they threw him into a pit. And the scripture tells us that Reuben intended later to, to get him out of the pit and you know, get him back home before something bad happened. Reuben did not want to kill his brother. But Reuben was away when some Midianites came by and the brothers thought, you know, we're going to kill him here in this pit. But Judah said, let's don't do that. Let's sell him to the Midianites and let's, well, Judah says, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? So neither Reuben nor Judah were much into bloodshed. But let me read you something about Simeon and Levi. It's in the 49th chapter of Genesis. This is later on at the end of Jacob's life when he's kind of summarizing, kind of part prophesying, prophesying and part summarizing. Uh, about his children. In Genesis 49, verses 5 to 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And what he is doing, of course, is he's the mouthpiece for the Lord here in this prophecy. And, of course, Simeon and Levi, if you look at the history of what happened, Simeon never had its own separate property. It was sort of absorbed by Judah. And Levi became, of course, the priestly tribe, and they were scattered all over the country. They were given 48 little towns, and they, they had no piece of land that they could call their own as, as a tribal property. But they had these cities scattered all through the rest of the land. Did these two brothers plan this whole thing by themselves? Whether other brothers 
had ever planned to participate in the slaughter and then backed out the last minute when they thought about the idea of cutting people up or not, we don't know. But Simeon and Levi seem to not have been deterred. And it was probably their plan from the beginning. And so they went to the city. Now, you can imagine they didn't walk up to the city with these swords waving out in the breeze. They probably had them underneath their robes. They were just coming for a friendly visit, you know. And then once they got inside the city, they went from house to house, ambushing the males, killing them, of course, most of the males probably being indoors and, uh, you know, being pretty pitiful lot at that moment, probably moaning and groaning about their problems. And they broke into the house and, and slaughtered the men from house to house. Two sword-wielding men with intense hatred and intense anger, with a purpose to carry out, were more than a match for any unorganized resistance that might have formed momentarily. Any woman that might have said, no, please don't kill my husband. Nothing stood in their way as they butchered the male population. Swiftly, stealthily, wiping out all who could have aided the prince and the king. Then they entered Hamer's house. And I think with great satisfaction, they slaughtered Hamer and Shechem. Shechem apparently had been allowed to take Dinah to his house as sort of a pledge, as sort of a guarantee that the brothers would carry through on this. She was in no danger, of course, at that particular moment because of Shechem's disability. And so it was thought safe to leave her there, but the brothers now took her out of the house as they left the town. Now, while the other brothers apparently were not willing to participate in the slaughter, they had no problem participating in the looting of the city of Shechem. No qualms about sacking a defenseless city. Stepping over dead bodies, they took everything movable. And what's interesting is they even took the women and the children. And of course, all of the animals and all of the crops that were at the point of needing to be harvested, they took everything. Now, actually, in many ways, it was it was a kindness for them to take the women and children because had they left the women and children in the city and moved off and left them in this defenseless city with no males to defend them, they would have been, of course, uh, the object of marauding bands that would have come around and who knows what terrible things would have happened to them. Well, Jacob is not slightly disturbed by this. He is mega disturbed by what has happened. And I think he was angry that these brothers did not allow him to make the final decision as to what would happen. He had never in his life killed anyone. And now his sons have slaughtered dozens. And now he is burdened with all of the women and all of the children of this city. I think he was frightened. He was frightened because of the consequences of his son's treachery. He was certain that the word would spread quickly. This guy Jacob and his sons are dangerous. They're deceivers. They'll try to get on your good side, and then when you're not looking, they'll butcher you all and steal everything. They're no better than the other gangs of Bedouins that come in out of the desert. And he was afraid that the other Canaanites would all gang up on him. They'd go word, go from city to city, and so they put together an army, and they'd come and butcher Jacob and his whole family. Now remember, he had a promise from God. I will be with you. But you and I have all, I think, at some time in our lives, faced a situation where we knew the promises of God, but we knew what we had done also. And we thought, if I were God, you ever watched the BC comic? Zot, you know, <laughs> the big lightning bolt comes out of the sky and incinerates whatever. You know, that's our attitude sometimes. You know, if I were God, I'd blow that person away, even though, you know, he professes to be my child. But look at what he's living, what he's done. We have to recognize that's not how God works. But, but Jacob has to feel, you know, God made this promise, but promises from God have got to be contingent. There's got to be at least a measure of faith and a measure of obedience here. 
Or how can I expect God to fulfill His promise? If God promises this and I live that way, how can I expect Him to fulfill my promise? Certainly those must have been thoughts in Jacob's mind. And so he accuses his sons of making him a stench in the noses of the Canaanites. Now, it should be noted that Simeon and Levi, notice the very last verse, Simeon and Levi reply insolently to their father. I mean, when you read that verse there, you have to note, he says, but they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? I think they spat it out to their father as they said that. I think their respect for Jacob was greatly diminished. And I think their respect for Jacob was diminished for two reasons. First of all, that he had not acted resolutely to take the leadership and to show them the way they ought to go. That he ought to have offered them an option to fight or flight. And that there should have been a fair way to redeem the honor of their sister. If he had figured out some way to do it, they certainly probably would have followed. But I think here there's another aspect that comes to light. They believed that their father, Jacob, didn't really have sufficient concern for his daughter, Dinah. That he didn't react strongly enough to the violation of this, his, own, his oldest daughter. I mean, he should have been fighting mad. Why wasn't he? Well, he may have been, but the passage doesn't, doesn't emphasize that. I think the reason that they felt that he didn't feel that way was, first of all, remember, she was the daughter of Leah. The four brothers, Simeon and Levi, were also the sons of Leah. And they knew that their mother was a second-class wife in Jacob's mind. Rachel was the daughter loved. Joseph was the son loved. And so I think jealousy was behind their actions too. Dad's not going to do anything about it, so we've got to do it. We've got to redeem the honor of our sister. Now, it's very, very important, I think, for us to know that nothing is out of God's hands here. God did not sanction the actions of Jacob's sons, but he allowed it. He allowed the city of Shechem to be destroyed as judgment upon that evil people and as judgment upon the crime that had been carried out. That did not exonerate Simeon and Levi. Think, Scripture prophesied that by one man, Jesus Christ would be betrayed. Did that get Judas off the hook? Absolutely not. Judas was responsible. He was not exonerated by the fact that prophecy said someone would betray Christ. God is sovereign. God knows all things. God is all-powerful. God controls all things. Nothing happens without his permission. And we think about the recent tragedies that have struck here in this city of Reading and, and others that we are familiar with that have happened just since in the last two weeks. And we think, where is God, you know? God is sovereign. God knows it all. God has allowed it for reasons that we may not know now. But that does not absolve a person or a nation from responsibility for their actions. When God said, and, and he tells us in the scripture, that he used Assyria as a whip against Israel because Israel had, not, had, had turned its back upon God. So he said, I'm going to use Assyria to punish Israel. Does God then absolve Assyria? No. He holds Assyria responsible for how they do it and who they credit for the ability to do it. And when Assyria brags about its great power and, and gives all the credit to their gods, what does God do? He sends a prophet along and says, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, that bloody city. And it was, wiped out. God knew these Hivites would never turn to him. And he saw them as a moral and spiritual cancer. So he allowed them to be destroyed. But Simeon and Levi would bear the stigma to their death, even as we read in the 49th chapter of Genesis. Even on his deathbed, Jacob reminded everyone through this passage of the character of these two men. And the ultimate result of it would be they would not have their own possession in the land. There's an interesting parallelism here, and I'll come to an end with this. Jacob deceived his father, right? 
for the birthright. He went off to the land of Paden Aram, and Laban deceived Jacob. And that's how come he ended up with Leah before he had Rachel. Well, the sons of Jacob have here deceived the Hivites, but the tables will be turned. And 400 years from now, the Hivites will deceive the sons of Jacob because the sons of Jacob will be coming into the land. They will capture Jericho. They will falter a little bit before Ai, but then they will capture Ai. And as they come to the top of the mountains there and they've captured Ai and Bethel, the next city logical for them to capture is the city of Gibeon. But the people from Gibeon who were Hivites related to these people came dressed as if they had come from a long distance with all dried up bread and everything. And they said, we're from long ways away and we've heard about your greatness and so we want to create a treaty with you. And what does Joshua do? He doesn't say, dear Lord, what should we do? He just says, oh, that sounds like a great idea. You really like us, huh? You think we're great? Sure, right on the dotted line. And they find out it's the next city they were supposed to conquer. So the Hivites will completely turn the table on them 400 years later. Deceit reaps deceit. God is not mocked. Whatsoever we sow, we reap. Next week, oh, by the way, you can read on your outline there, I have Joshua 9. I don't want to take time to read it, but you can read that. It just tells the story that I just mentioned there about that uh, deceit. Uh, next week, we're going to look at, begin looking at the, 20, at the 35th chapter of Genesis, and uh, God finally speaks again. Interesting, I, I forget who it was pointed out to me last time we had class that the passage of Scripture in their particular Bible, I think it was in the footnotes or something, that God is mentioned at the end of chapter 33 and at the beginning of 35, but God is never mentioned in chapter 34. <laughs> Interesting when, when you think about that because chapter 35 says, Then God said, okay, <laughs> I think there's a, a, a word to the wise there.